Hey, y'all. Arthi Shahani here. I am on maternity leave, as you may know, in utter baby bliss. Cannot put words to how I feel. And so we're bringing you another episode of one of our very best interviews. This one is with a woman who ran for governor in Georgia in 2018. She lost that election, and then she got right back up, and she's running again in 2022. Guess whom? Stacey Abrams. That's right. You got it. Enjoy. Do you have what it takes to roll with Stacey Abrams? Who exactly is this Stacey Abrams? She's hard at work making sure everyone has a chance to make their vote count. Best-selling author, an entrepreneur, and a political powerhouse. Leading the charge to make Georgia into the swing state it is tonight. You also have time uh, to write books. While Justice Sleeps is available now. Founder of Fair Fight. Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Welcome to the table. Give it up for Stacey Abrams. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, the many sides of Stacey Abrams, one of the highest profile democracy activists on earth. She almost became the first black female governor in America. We keep waiting for this moment where we can act. I am hyper impatient. We have to stop waiting for someone to give us permission to do. We talk about how victory and defeat are rarely decisive, why she writes romance novels, she's a novelist too, and also her love life. I've not been great at dating. You know, after a while you realize some of it's them and some of it's you. I think I could get better at it. I just have to practice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So let's just start here. You are a politician, an entrepreneur, a lawyer, a strategist, a novelist. So I just like rattled off a list of things. Who does Stacey Abrams think Stacey Abrams is? I am someone who likes to fix problems and who enjoys being creative. I am someone who believes in finishing projects that I start And I've always wanted to be someone who could navigate in different worlds. Uh, My mom, when I was probably 14, was doing a bunch of different things. And she chided me and said, you you don't want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. Mm -hmm. She was telling me to pick something. I heard become a master of all things. (laughs) So... <laughs> so you are a selective listener. That's what you're saying. <laughs> I, 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 well, you know, look, she should have been more specific. So for me, it was if I'm going to try something, if I'm going to let it capture my attention, my responsibility then is to be as good at it as I can be. Uh-huh. But without worrying about perfection, though. I mean, right? That's a- no, no, no. I'm I I describe my personality as a minus B plus. Like I'm driven. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm not Type A enough to care about perfection. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a very goodest. Like, I want to get it done. I want to be really solid at it. 
but I'm not competing with other people to determine how effective I am. And are you just naturally that way? It's just how you're wired ever since your mom told you you should be this other way? Or did you have to train yourself to not be a perfectionist? Oh, I've never been a perfectionist. I I have my own internal barometer for success Uh and for achievement. I, I just recognize what I'm trying to get done and that may not match what other people expect to see. So I have high standards. I just right. have set them internally. Mm-hmm. And so for me, sometimes the standard is, did I get it done? In other cases, the standard is, was it really good? Uh, but perfectionism sort of presumes this optimal state of being, and I don't think you can get there, so I don't try. Is there advice, like actionable advice you have for people who fall into that trap? Yeah, For so many people, we are chasing this arbitrary notion of success or worse, this unattainable notion of what perfection is, which means you begin your endeavor with the absolute reality of failure, Hmm. which is, it can be enervating. It can be despair inducing. For some, it's motivating and congratulations to them. (laughs) But for most people, knowing you're never going to get there slowly robs you of the joy of doing the work. And so my first advice is, you know, set your own standards. Now your standards should be high, but they should be calibrated to what's possible, to what is imaginable, which are often two different things. And then hopefully what you do is find yourself somewhere in between the two. I urge young people in particular who work for me, who you know get very upset when they make a mistake or when you know, in two years, they're not running the universe. Like, was that an attainable goal? What could you have done more? But what did you do so well that if you keep repeating it, you'll get closer to your goal? I, I, I sort of describe my trajectory as sort of an asymptote of success. I get really close to the line. I never cross the plane. <laughs> but it's becoming comfortable with that in a way that doesn't make you lazy or complacent, but it also doesn't become this paralysis that makes you not move because you know you're not going to get there. I'm like literally taking from this, aim for a B plus. B plus is very respectable and you get to do more when that's what you're aiming for along the way. A minus B plus. I, I know there's some people hearing this thinking, oh my God, she's telling people to be mediocre and I'm not. I'm saying that your your obligation to yourself and your endeavors should be to strive as much as you can. I mean, look, I, I'm a, I want more things than are possible, but I also give myself grace to understand that my efforts may not meet my imagination, and that's okay. Right, that there's an opportunity cost to perfection, yes. and that cost may not be worth it. I get it. Exactly. That's, that makes sense. It sounds very rational. Is there a leader, Abrams? Can you call I, me Stacy, please? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Stacy. Um <laughs> Is there a unifying thread that guides what you choose to do? Because from the outside, I look at everywhere you are, and I'm like, how is she not exploding into five or 50 people? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I I like addressing problems, fixing – I like fixing things. And I like building systems that sustain the work that I've tried when I'm not there. And if I've done my job exceptionally well – Hmm. They live after me and they continue to do what I need them to do. Hmm. You're a perpetual starter. You want to start, start, start. Exactly. 
And, and I, I, I don't want to cast it as I, I just like to set fires. <laughs> I, I like to build engines. And I think that's the difference that, you know, sort of fire starter. Yes, you get to see the blaze. I want to build engines, things that keep producing. And that's because the problems that I see, the issues I want to tackle, I know they are so intractable that I am not going to be the one to solve them. That does not stop me from being the one who wants to tackle them. Stacy, so tell us, what are your plans for 2018? <laughs> you got anything going well, on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm going to run for governor. In fact, I know I am. Already a seasoned politician, the minority leader for the Democratic Party in Georgia, in 2018, she decided governor was a logical next step. No U.S. state has ever elected a black woman governor. And so tonight I say thank you all. Now let's go get it done. Her campaign electrified millions. She got volunteers she never expected, like Oprah Winfrey. I just called Stacy up three days ago. Yes, I, I didn't even know a number. I was just asking everybody, you know Stacey Abrams? You know Stacey Abrams? You know Stacey Abrams? Finally somebody said, I know Stacey Abrams. And they said, I have her cell number. I go, give it to me. Stacey Abrams had a novel strategy. Most politicians focus on getting votes from people who regularly go to the ballot. She wanted to turn out unlikely voters, those who are disinterested or not sure politics is for them or unable to get the day off work. In other words, most people. I believe if we overwhelm the system with our turnout, if we demonstrate the capacity of Georgia to show up, then any shenanigans that might be happening will be discovered and will be taken care of. And she did overwhelm the system. In 2018, an estimated 55 percent of eligible voters, more than half the electorate, came out. It was historic, record-breaking, 21 points higher than Georgia's average for three decades. But there is something Stacey Abrams did not anticipate. Her opponent in the race also happened to be the man in charge of Georgia's voting machinery. This man, then Secretary of State Brian Kemp, purged roughly one and a half million voters, disproportionately people of color, from the voting rolls. He claimed many of the registrations were inactive or ineligible. Are you removing black voters from the voter rolls just so you can win this election? Why are you purging voters? Mr. Kemp, would you like to respond? Yeah, well, that's just factually not true. Under his watch, more than 1,800 voting machines in the most Democratic districts sat idle, locked up in a warehouse on Election Day, according to news reports. At one point, the lines were four hours long. Election officials failed to provide power cords for some voting machines on site. Two hours for help to arrive. Hours-long lines formed in predominantly black neighborhoods. What, about a football field or more, and we're just standing in line, but we're doing it. She says that you set up less polling locations, especially in urban areas. Well, that's just a mistruth. The county elections officials, the local elections boards have the sole responsibility for how many polling locations they have and where they are. That has been the the rule of of law and the way it works in Georgia under Republican and Democrat secretaries of state. And in the end, when the votes that got to be cast were tallied, 
He won. Republican Brian Kemp's campaign has declared victory over Democrat Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, who thought she was battling citizens' reluctance, came to realize she was up against a different beast entirely. The night she accepted defeat, she made it clear she was not conceding. So let's be clear. This is not a speech of concession. Standing behind her on the stage was a line of young women, mostly women of color. Pundits and hyperpartisans will hear my words as a rejection of the normal order. To concede is to say the system worked as intended. It did not, to all our detriment, she explained. You see, as a leader, I should be stoic in my outrage and silent in my rebuke. But stoicism is a luxury, and silence is a weapon for those who would quiet the voices of the people. And I will not concede because the erosion of our democracy is not right. In that same speech, she announced she was creating a new organization, Fair Fight, to combat voter suppression. When Stacey and I talk, I want to feel gung-ho, inspired by fighting the good fight. But I don't. So many things have happened to block people from exercising their constitutional right to vote. In part, I'm actually using this conversation to fight some cynicism I have. Okay. Um, you have a political calculation. It's if I, Stacey Abrams, can get people to vote who don't vote, we're going to win. But it didn't work. And I guess I want to ask you, you know, without trying to sugarcoat it with forced optimism, what is a lesson you learned from that? I don't indulge often in optimism. I, I'm I'm more of a determinist. And in that way, the math is on my side. If you take the known universe of available voters and you add to it the universe of discounted or unexpected voters, mm-hmm. the math will eventually win out because numbers don't lie. Hmm. The challenge is that in politics, it's not just the numbers. It's the numbers, it's the systems, it's the managers of those systems. Not everyone is equal. Votes are weighted heavily. Exactly. Your access different. There, there are all these interstitial issues that are going to disrupt the math. There are levers to pull to make sure you don't matter. Exactly. And so my responsibility is not forced optimism. It is identification of the potential voters It's also identification of the impediments to their participation. Mm -hmm. Some of those are internalized based on years and years of oppression, years and years of suppression, and years of despair. And some are externalized. Mm -hmm. Leaders who misuse their power and abuse their power to diminish the potential participation of voters. Who knock out citizens from voter rolls. Knock out citizens from voting, block them from getting there, and then create entire, you know, architecture to make sure that's sustainable. Mm -hmm. So my job is to understand all of those things exist and attack each of those pieces as I can. And if I'm doing it to the, you know, with the greatest amount of capacity, it is to use a force multiplier effect to push through it. That's what we saw happen in 2020. Just a quick footnote. In 2020, Stacey and her team turned out even more voters and flipped Georgia so that the presidency and both Senate seats went to her party. She made happen that year what she could not in 2018. It did not happen for me in 18 because there were some impediments we simply did not know existed because we didn't know to ask, 
Did you, by the way, purge more people in a single day than any other secretary of state in American history? That's not a question you ask all the time. And so was your great lesson from 2018, oh, there was information asymmetry. I didn't know how dirty the opposition was willing to get. The the lessons are multiple. One is that you can't know everything. And that's an important lesson that is not, it it is grounded in a cynicism that you have to carry with you. You are not going to know everything. So you've got to plan for as much as you can. We have the only statewide voter protection operation that ran year round in my campaign. We were the first ones to do it in the country. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big deal. We knew that we were running against someone who we didn't know who the opponent would be, but we knew we were running against a party that was using this architecture to block the vote. We did not realize how aggressive and pervasive it had become. So that was one lesson. The second lesson was that when we tried to circumvent it, we didn't have enough time. And so the day the campaign stopped, one of the reasons I started Fair Fight was that the system was going to persist even if the campaign was over. And if my mission really is to get those people to vote, Mm -hmm. my job was not to just get them to vote for me. It was to get them to vote and make myself the most viable choice for those voters. And so are you saying basically keep doing what we're doing with systems that can sustain the length of the fight? Yes. And and that leads to the third. The third is adapt to each new challenges that come. So 2020, we adapted to the challenges of 2018. And we were able through litigation, legislation, and advocacy to change the systems to make them more uh, manageable for voters. Mm -hmm. In response, in 2021, they've created a whole new set of superstructures. She's not saying it, but they are Republicans. America is currently witnessing a very partisan battle over the ballot, one in which some Republicans claim, falsely, that there's widespread voter fraud. Roughly a dozen Republican-controlled states have passed laws to restrict who can vote or make other big changes. Georgia's new election bill is signed into law, but that's just the start. Legislatures in 47 states are considering voting bills that the nonpartisan Brennan Center for Justice deems restrictive. The lesson then is that wins aren't permanent. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a naivete that says, oh, we've gotten this done and therefore we can march forward in victory. No, victory is incredibly temporary. Loss is temporary. And so the third lesson is to recognize that what I did in 18 led me to understand what needs to be done in 20 and what we got done in 20 create a whole new set of issues for 21. Right. That can be undone. Exactly. And so you can't ever believe that what you've done is enough to defeat those who oppose you. And that's the that's sort of a truth of politics, but it's something we sometimes allied in our logic where we think, well, if we just fix this thing, it's going to be all right. No, it's not. not. It won't ever be. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it this way before. Is it basically like, well, if you want a permanent or decisive victory, tough luck, it's not going to happen. If you're willing to accept there are only temporary victories, you can only get the B plus yes. A minus of victories, not the A plus, yes. and you go exactly. at it. And and we have these A-plus moments that pepper our history that make us believe that A-pluses are the norm. They are not. That's the reason we remember them. It's a shimmer. And so in terms of just one more touch of cynicism here, the machinery that you build, I mean, it's it's not magic. I mean, what you're talking about doing what you've done with Fair Fight, it's like, (laughs) you know, 
organize an entity that uses all the levers that are available to go ahead and push people into the voter rolls and keep them there. You've listed out things that they feel nothing like magic. They just feel like consistent hard work. And I read that and I'm like, I get it. It makes sense to me. And then I look at the number of bills coming out that kill voting. I look at who's in the Supreme Court and the way they may vote to basically not grant standing to people that are suing for their right to vote. I mean, I just see all these ways that, (laughs) you know, I was talking to my sister about it. And she's like, I mean this with respect, but is it a little bit like bringing hugs to a gunfight? Oh, not at all. It's bringing guns to a gunfight, just knowing that the other side has a lot more money behind their weapon, you know, their weapons factory. You don't stop fighting because you are outmatched. You stop fighting when you lose and when you accept that loss is permanent. When when I ran to be leader in the House, it was after Democrats lost every statewide office. We had never been at such a nadir. We had fewer legislators for our party than any time mm-hmm. in our state's history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was bad. And I said, you know, I want to be leader. I want to be in charge of this group. And, you know, what I said is, look, I've been a minority for a very long time. I am really good at it. <laughs> I mean, but the reality is when you're in the minority, you never have weapons to match the other side. You never have their resources. You never control the systems. You never grasp the full expanse of power that they hold. Right. But that also then unlocks for you these guerrilla tactics and these workarounds and these tunneling opportunities. Mm-hmm. Plus, you become much more innovative and inventive in how you address challenges. As you said, nothing I describe is magic, but they didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. They just didn't expect the competence. Because they there's a dismissal because you don't have the power, because you don't have the weapons they have. So I may not bring... I if, if I'm bringing knives to a gunfight, I'm trying to make sure they're machetes and you know, <laughs> you know the stars. Yeah. Well, know. I said hugs, but okay, short knives. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and that that cynicism that I'm reflecting to you in this conversation that I'm bringing out, maybe trying to mm-hmm. over enunciate, it's there. I mean, it's rapid. You know, it's oh, rampantly there. You know, you're not just fighting voter suppression; you're fighting voter indifference. Is that indifference a powerful force? It's not indifference. I, I there there's a small cadre of voters for whom it is truly indifference. Mm. But for the larger populace that I try to reach out to, it is despair, guised as indifference or apathy. When you have seen as a persistent reality the dismissal of your humanity, the dismissal of the quality of your citizenship, of course you're cynical. If you've grown up in generational poverty, mm-hmm. no, you don't trust a politician who says anything to you because nothing changes. And so part of my job is, and, and this is language you use, but I use it all the time, it's voting isn't magic. Voting is medicine. And so my work is to not only make sure you get the health care you need, meaning you have access to the right to vote, but it's also convincing you that it's worth taking the medicine because things do get better incrementally, mm. plottingly. And we may never cure the disease, but if we can treat the symptoms, things will get better. There is progress. But we've got to be honest about that. And that's the other piece, I think, to my campaign in 18 that was effective and remains effective in the work we do on voting rights, which is that I don't offer pablum. I don't offer promises that will never be realized. I try to be you know, frustratingly honest about what can be done, but I'm never going to promise you nirvana. I don't know where it is. Can't get there. Not sure I want to be there. <laughs> 
How did your gubernatorial campaign change you? I think it reinforced things I perceived about myself, but hadn't tested out in broad daylight in real time. A test worthy of your insides. Okay. How so? Well, you know, (laughs) I've lost before, but never on such a massive stage and (laughs) with so many people watching. With Oprah opening for you at live events. Yeah. It it is a disconcerting thing. And to to not win on such a public stage. I mean, look, 2018, I was the most Googled politician in the world. That meant that the first time I had to go to the airport, I was terrified of just the embarrassment Mm. of being among people who may or may not know me, but would see me as this like abject failure. Mm. And I went anyway, because I had to go and talk to people about voting rights. And so for me, it was, even if my personal you know, ignominy was going to live on. I had this larger set of responsibilities and I was good enough as a person to still put the needs that I identified as necessary above my, my own. Mm-hmm. And hmm. two, that I hadn't done that bad a job that people liked me and they, they, they mourned with me, but they also celebrated me and celebrated the work I'd done. And, and when I say celebrated me, I don't mean me the person me the avatar of what I tried to portray when I was running, which is that I want to be someone who will help and people believe that. And that was a validation that continues to resonate for me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit dense, but then Please. what is the change? It wasn't change. Mm-hmm. It was recognition because we tell ourselves stories about who we are. Mm-hmm. I would do this if if a gunman came up to me. And there's this whole TikTok thing where what would you do if I broke in your house? Right. You know, and we all, you have all these, exactly like what you do. Like, what would you do if you had this massive loss and the thing you wanted, you weren't going to get? And we tell ourselves, oh, I would be this person. I'd get up and dust myself off and go exactly. at it. <laughs> well, I got a real time example of mm. what it was. Mm-hmm. And so it, for me, was more of a, I didn't need the object lesson. I would have preferred to just make sure it was still, you know, hypothetical. But it was something I recognized was in myself. But you know, that is not to say that we don't change over time. But I wouldn't say that 2018 created this massive shift in who I am. It was a sharpening of who I've been. And it was a reminder of who I thought I would become. Right. And it's actually now reminding me of what other people have said about their moments in crisis, for example, that you really see who you are. And in your case, you liked what you saw. You're somebody who could mourn and get right up. Crisis sometimes changes us, but more often it reveals us. And my crisis was a revelatory moment. Were you stronger than you thought you were? I was more resilient. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I've always defined strength differently. So for me, the the issue was there was never a question in my mind that I was going to just quit, drop out. Like that's just not part of who I am. And that meant that the question was, what would I do? Would I return to things that were comfortable and familiar? Would I do what I said I was going to do if I'd become governor? And then going back to the very beginning of this conversation, what structures did I need to create to make sure what happened in 18 didn't happen again in that same way? Thank you.
After the break, Stacey Abrams gets personal. Stacey, how do you heal from heartache? Slowly. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Stacy, how do you heal from heartache? Slowly. Can you tell me a little bit more? There is no way to spend two years in public and eight years in planning (laughs) and not have a loss, not break your heart. Mm -hmm. But part of the heartbreak is not getting this thing you wanted. And so the first job is to make sure you understand why you wanted it. Did you want the title? Did you want the results? Mm -hmm. Did you want the moment of victory? And and it's necessary to kind of deconstruct that. And that's what I did. I, I made myself really sit with what was it that I was mourning? And part of it was embarrassment, which isn't heartbreak. That's just, Mm -hmm. it feels like it sometimes, but really that's just ego. Part of it was that I knew the person who won was not going to do the things I thought needed to be done. And so there was a real regret and sadness. And part of it was all of the people who had invested with me and the sense that I'd somehow let them Mm -hmm. down. And that's, that Mm -hmm. was the hardest piece to, to navigate, but getting among them gave me the opportunity to realize I, as long as I was doing the things I said I would do, I was meeting and being the person I said I was going to be. And so, I mean, as I'm hearing what you're saying, you analyze your way through it? Yes. Huh. I, I actually, this is one of the most important aspects of you because you are a hero to so many people. And what we do with our heroes is we look at them when we're down and we want to channel what they're channeling and we want to understand how they get up. And, and so that's, you know, it, it, you analyze your way through. Okay. Is, is there anything else? Is there anyone there who, who, do you need to be lifted up by others or not really? Oh, of course. Of course. It's always helpful to have people tell you you're not lying to yourself. And so I'm well known for this. I talk about it in my book, uh, Lead from the Outside. So 18, guy breaks my heart. I put together my spreadsheet, you know, here are the things I'm going to do to, you know, be the person I want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 2018, I don't win the election 10 day period while we're in the midst of litigation and recounting. And my younger sister, Janine was you know, sort of tapped by my siblings. I'm the second of six kids. Janine found a reason every day to just come and check on me or to bring mm-hmm. something by. Mm-hmm. Like clearly she was told to make sure I, you know, the Stacy patrol. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So, and uh-huh. it was like day four or five, she showed up and I showed her this uh, legal pad where I'd drawn this circle and it was the ecosystem of the things we needed to change. We needed to fix democracy and voter protection, which was fair fight. Uh-huh. We needed to fix the census uh-huh. and then the Southern Economic Advancement Project, which was all of the things I wanted to do on the policy front. So I, I say this for this reason. <laughs> 
that notepad was my 21st century version of my spreadsheet. Mm. I, I concretize my things because as long as they're swirling in your head or leadening your heart, you can't mm. grasp it or find your way through it. Mm. I write it down and I deconstruct it because one, you it's- You make a, yourself stare it in the eyes. You do, but it's yeah. also a distraction from just how bottomless despair can feel and sadness can feel. And if you sink too deep, it's hard to swim your way to the top. But if you write something down, if you, once again, it was concretizing goals, but using those to remind myself of why I do this stuff, of why I went through this process. Mm. That analysis can sound cold, but it also just gives you anchors. And more importantly, if you're in this well of despair, it gives you handholds so you can start to climb out of it. You are a prolific author, 11 books, fiction and nonfiction. Do you write novels as a way to heal or as a way to, you know, in some ways it's like the human world is so imperfect. Does the, the literary world become a place that you can escape from, you know, the morass that is humanity? <laughs> no, not exactly. I, I, I write romantic suspense. It can be cathartic. Mm-hmm. For me, fiction isn't a, an escape. It's just another outlet. Mm. And what do you get to do in fiction that is different from what you do in the many other things that you pursue? I kill a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) It's where your destructive energy can come out just full force. Exactly. It's where you can bring machine guns to the gunfight. There you go. (laughs) No, I mean, look, you get get to guarantee an outcome uh, in fiction that you don't get to guarantee in real life. You get to... Hmm perfect the pieces of yourself that you like and you can, you know, soften the edges that cause you concern. Mm -hmm. And you get to become an amalgam of all these other people and things that you never will be. Like I'm never going to be the characters in my book, Mm. but each of them carry a piece of me and aspirational me. And so those are fun bits of things to be able to do. That's fine. And explain just that part a little bit more aspirational you, because we started this conversation with me pointing out there are so many yous. You already are aspirational for many, right? You're the Renaissance <laughs> woman for many. But for you, you're not. I mean, and that makes sense. Where you know, There's always more that the individual wants. So how do you do that with your heroines? So my very first character, Riley, in rules of engagement was a chemical physicist. I wanted to be a physicist. I mm. did not become one. And I was always very disappointed. I was never recruited by the CIA mm. and she got to be a spy. Mm. Uh, she <laughs> had, you know, she had this, this tortured love affair and, you know, I, I, mine are much more pedestrian, but all of those pieces got to be things I either wished I could have, or just won't ever be. I mean, I have a heroine who is a professional poker player, would love to do that. And so you pluck out pieces of who you are and who you imagine yourself to be. I'm not as kind as some of my characters are. I'm not as witty as some of my characters are. Mm. I'm certainly not as adventurous as they are. And in some ways, I'm not as romantic as I wish I could be. There are these parts of me that I get to explore in those characters. What do you mean you're not that much of a romantic? I've not been great at dating. Hmm. And I, you know, after a while you realize some of it's them and some of it's you. Hmm. I think I could get better at it. Uh, I just have to practice. But there's a 
I have friends who are just sort of innately, they think about love in this wonderfully kind and inclusive and soft way that I'm just not capable of. Mm. I think I'm a good partner. I think I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. But I sometimes forget the easy sort of soft things. Mm. I didn't expect you to end the sentence that way. I might be doing a bit of projecting. Forgive me for that. I thought what you were going to say was if you don't really just buy into the idea of love and a sort of, you know, wistful love, if you're more skeptical, it's harder to fall into it because you don't believe it's there. That's not what you're saying. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. I am different at it. I, I'm mm. so this goes back to the analysis. I'm I'm a utilitarian. Mm-hmm. And my highest compliment, although very few people take it that way, is that you have utility, that you mm. have a usefulness and a capacity that you know sort of exceeds your programming. That is that's important to me. <laughs> it it's how I it's how I I value myself in relationships. You tell me that your dog is sick. What I'm supposed to ask is, oh, how do you feel? Uh-huh. What I ask instead is, do you need a veterinarian? Do you need transportation? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I can read a book if you need sure. me to help do, you know, you know yeah, that's yeah. what I do. Uh-huh. And that follows me and it follows me in politics. It follows me in business. It follows me in writing. And so it is, it is not a good or bad. Mm-hmm. It is just a different. Mm-hmm. And so what have you analyzed as the programmatic way you were going to enact being better at dating? One, I got to find somebody, but mm-hmm. I, the last time I dated, I was more intentional about reaching out. So mm. I'm an introvert who gets very comfortable with silence. Mm. <laughs> so I realized perhaps I should be more intentional about engaging. And so I, I, I was very thoughtful about reaching out and saying the things that weren't that important. Mm-hmm. Like every message doesn't have to have a meaning. I'm, I'm not a fun texter. Like I will... I had to practice, but mm. I got better at it. Mm. And I recognized that that was something he needed, that it was a good thing for him to know that I wasn't always thinking about these more um, analytical and programmatic things. Hmm. I, but I had to tell myself, Stacy, do not respond to this text with this thing. Say this thing instead. <laughs> I thought you'd be the queen of texting banter. That's just sort of my... I can't. Oh, I, but I can't. That's, it turns out I was actually really good at uh-huh. it. It just didn't occur to me before uh-huh. because I this situation calls for <laughs> well because often uh-huh. the questions I and I realized it later sometimes most of the questions I was getting mm-hmm. if you ask me about my day mm-hmm. my day is a little different than others and so there's this tendency that because my life is so serious that I only want to talk about the serious mm-hmm. and I realized I was just reinforcing the expectation mm-hmm. and so I had to be the one to insert the fact that I watch an inordinate amount of television mm-hmm. and have a taxonomy of you know Star Trek and Doctor Who and Fast and the Furious movies that is worthy of exploration and conversation. It's also, though, I mean, like, it's not that hard to believe that an incredibly serious woman is also very playful. I think it's it's just this kind of, I think, in some ways, stupid stereotype that floats around about power women. It it, it can happen. And sometimes you reinforce it because it's just easier than trying to explain that, yes, I do make very corny jokes and enjoy them with a degree of hilarity that just astounds my siblings. Mm-hmm. I hope this podcast helps find the dream man. I'm like, hello. Hey, <laughs> look, Artie, you, 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 look, you contain multitudes, so if you can pull that off, 
Mazel tov. That's that's another goal here. There we go. Let me ask you the final question. You've been so generous okay. with your time. Many of our listeners, they want to fix the broken world. Whether they build new engines, whether they drive the engine you're starting, they want to play that kind of role. What is it that you know now that they, that we need to know? So in in my book, Our Time is Now, the whole reason for the book Mm -hmm. is to answer that question. And it sounds like, you know, the end of a, or the the sort of origin story arc of any superhero. The power has always been within you. I mean, but it's true. We keep waiting for this moment where we can act. We wait for this invitation to do, or we wait for mm-hmm. the other side and you, you define the other side the way you want, for the other side to either be defeated or to realize the error of its ways happen that way. Some external catalyst. Where is the external catalyst? Deus ex machina. Not going to happen. And so I believe in creating my own opportunities, but those opportunities don't have to be these grand moments. They are small things. Mm. They are sometimes nominal things, whether it was setting up a table to register voters when I was 17 or knocking on doors when I was running for governor. In both of those spaces, Things that helped change a dynamic and a narrative started with a small decision. We've got the capacity. And I truly believe there are more of us who are in, who intend well for the world than there are of those who either intend ill or do not care. But we have to stop waiting for someone to give us permission to have mm-hmm. and to do. I've... I am hyper impatient and I don't wait. And that I think is the, the arc of my story. My lessons from Stacey Abrams. One, aim for B plus A minus. Life has very few decisive victories or decisive failures. You will never be done. So don't waste time trying to get the perfect result. Two, pay attention to what a crisis reveals about you, your weaknesses and strengths. And instead of sinking to the bottom of a vast ocean of despair, write down lessons and next steps. Like, you know, in a spreadsheet. Three, an external force is probably not what will spur you into action. You gotta act. Don't wait for invitations. episode of Art of Power was produced by Hina Srivastava, Justin Bull, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our intern is Paloma Moreno-Jimenez. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, you heard something you didn't expect, a fresh conversation with a well-known figure, hit subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. It really matters. Tell your friends and families. Share, share, share. Let me know what you think. Text me. 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. Thanks. See you next week. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.